Good morning. Today I'd like to start with a simple verse from Matthew chapter five. It's verse nine. These are the words of Jesus. He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Blessed or blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Or I guess you could switch the order and you could say that the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, and many of you think of yourself that way, which you rightfully should, but they shall be called peacemakers. Those words, of course, are some of the opening words that Jesus shared during one of his most famous sermons, his first large-scale public message. We read about it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's a message all about a new kingdom, a new culture, a new government, a new way of being human. It's called the kingdom of God. And something about being a peacemaker has to do with being in that kingdom and building that kingdom. Now today, I'd like to start by asking you a question. Have you ever thought of yourself as a peacemaker? Or even thought about what that might mean? I can tell you that being a peacemaker does not mean to be just a peacekeeper or to be a peacebreaker. And it's certainly not just a peaceful person, as nice as that is. But a peacemaker is someone who with their presence and their actions and their restraint and their courage and their words, they live a committed life to bringing peace within relationships where there is division and hostility. So right away what I want you to hear about being a peacemaker is that it is about relationships and people are the agenda. Now I'll admit that when I think about what it means to follow Jesus, being a peacemaker doesn't rise to the top of the list, but it probably should. Because here it appears in one of the most important lists that's ever been given, what we call the Beatitudes. This is one of the greatest pieces of teaching that's ever been given, and it's there at the top of the list. But many of us have neglected this. My guess, though, that if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have thought of yourself as a child of God, that connection to a peacemaker. It's a powerful identity marker in your life that gives you assurance and value and confidence and resilience so important to understand that you belong to him and you've always belonged to him. There's a place for you at his table. But how many of us as children of God have thought of themselves or ourselves as peacemakers? I wonder if we've taken Jesus' words serious enough. I wanna tell you a story. Last month, I was confronted with the fact that I'm not very good at being a peacemaker. Back in August, uh, our family received dis the disappointing news. It, it wasn't uh, overly terrible, but disappointing that the high school football was not going to take place in Colorado. And that's disappointing for us because we have a son that's in high school and he was excited to play. He has three younger brothers who were allowed to play. So the decision was not just disappointing, but it was also confusing because his eighth grade brother, sixth grade brother, his second grade brother were all allowed to play. They were told it's safe, but they were told it wasn't safe for him to play. And so we were disappointed. Well, last month, there was a week in which the governor and Chasa, which is the governing board for high school sports in Colorado, went back and forth deciding whether or not they were going to reverse that decision. And there were a couple days during that week, it looked like football was gonna happen and emails were going out and all the kids were getting excited. But then one evening, the board decided to vote down unanimously the return of football this fall. And their reasoning was that the restrictions made it so that it would be impossible to play. Well, back and forth they went, that eventually was changed, but before it was changed, and we actually heard the news that we were wanting to hear, I was very angry, and I decided that I wanted to do something, and so someone, I won't name who, sent me the emails of all eight Chassa board members. And I thought it would be a good idea to voice my frustration 
and anger to them in an email. So that day, I posted all the addresses in. I fired off my email. I hit send, and I felt satisfied. A few days later, I told Elise about the email I sent. She said, well, I want to send an email. So I gave her the email addresses, and then she fired off an email, and she felt very satisfied. Well, a day later or so, I received a response from one of those Chassa board members. It actually was a board member who recognized my name, think that we actually had wrestled each other in high school, and he sent back an email kind of confronting me about the, the, the tone of my email. I went down past his comments. I reread the email that I sent, and I was immediately ashamed. I had sent the very type of email that I hate getting. I had reacted. I had been triggered, and I broke my rule. Gene and I have a rule here at Cornerstone that we don't fire off an email the day that we're thinking of it. When we're feeling it, we wait a day. I had broken that rule. I didn't care in the moment but I was so ashamed. I apologized to that guy that day. Well, things actually got worse because the next week my younger brother, who happens to be an athletic director at a high school in Fort Collins, so he knows all these people that I've been emailing, he calls me up and says, hey Brian, I need to talk to you and Elise about the emails you sent. He went on to tell me that a couple board members called him up because there's not a lot of Carlucci's in Colorado. I wish our name was Smith or Jones or something like that so we could be a little more uh, anonymous. But there's not a lot of Carlucci's and they said, hey, do you know these people? Like, this guy's name sounds like yours. Brian Carlucci, Brandon Carlucci. And uh, Brandon, of course, said, yeah, that's my brother and my sister-in-law. They read the emails to Brandon. He was embarrassed, humiliated that that kind of email would come from anyone in his family. Again, I was so ashamed I apologized to my brother, so did Elise. And that afternoon, I, I sent this email to the, the Chassa board. I said, dear board members, last week, you all received an email from both my wife, Elise Carlucci, and I. First of all, we want to apologize for the rude, personal, and inappropriate emails you received from both of us. We have no explanation for our emotional outburst. We both let our frustration and confusion as parents get the best of us, but that is no excuse. We sincerely are sorry for any offense caused to you during this difficult time. We understand that the challenges you are facing and our emails did not communicate that. Again, we are so sorry for having sent those emails. Please let us know how we might make amends for this offense in the future. So that happened. In the middle of four months where your pastor's been meditating on the passage, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. I'm very aware today as I start a new series and share some new vision for our church that I'm not very good at what we wanna be after together. But I'm willing to grow and I'm willing to grow with you because I believe that this is a timely message for our church and for our culture and it's needed today. Because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. We represent the family when we act in whatever it means to be a peacemaker. Now, I wanna take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 right now because there we get some help in trying to understand what it means to be a peacemaker. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, but he's called us to do something similar. So Paul, I believe, is riffing uh, on the words of Jesus. This is a theme throughout the scripture. And he again is saying, you represent the ultimate peacemaker in the way that you engage with others. So here's Paul's words. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Messiah and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Over the years, I've studied this passage with many of you and, and other friends, and there are certain things that stand out that we love. We love the phrase, Christ's love compels us. It moves us, it motivates us. We love that. We love this phrase, therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new has come. We love that imagery. We love this idea that we are Christ's ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us. But we fail to connect often the theme of the entire passage, which is reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. That's how we represent him as his ambassadors. He is compelling us towards reconciliation, which is another way of saying peacemaking. The new creation creates peacemakers. Here in this passage, the word for reconciliation is a Greek word that means to reconcile those with variance or those with differences or those with hostility. Other places it's used this way, to return to favor with another or to receive one into favor. Now doesn't that sound like the gospel? To return to favor with another or to receive one into favor. It sounds like the prodigal son coming home and his father wrapping his arms around him. That's what reconciliation is. It's the restoration of the relationship. Here at Cornerstone, we have a friend in a, a partner ministry in Israel. Uh, our friend there is, is a man named Salim and his ministry is called Musalaha. And his entire ministry is built around the theme of reconciliation and he works to bring, listen to this, Messianic Jews living in Israel and Palestinian Christians living in Israel together to repair the relationship. Now talk about thousands of years of offense and divisive narratives that exist. They have to work through all of those things. Salim's a resource for us during this season. We look forward to having him this, this coming spring to, to train us more on, on how to do this. But he defines reconciliation this way. He says it is not just the restoration of the relationship, which it is, but it's the redefining of the relationship. No longer enemies. The redefining and the restoration of relationships. So if you were to ask, what is peacemaking about? What is this series about? What is this new ministry, this new element to Cornerstone? I would say it's about equipping us in such a way that we can be people who bring restoration into relationships. We're describing it this way. The ministry of peacemaking at Cornerstone Church exists to support individuals, families, leaders, and communities to be ambassadors of reconciliation within our communities and beyond. Peacemakers seek to bring justice and transformation in cultural areas that have been marked by hostility and harmful divisions. We believe it is the continual work of the gospel in our world to engage in the, world, in the work of reconciliation to bring about greater equity and justice and ultimately redefined and restored relationships. So when we talk about peacemaking beyond this series and what we're after in this series is growing in our ability to be what Jesus is for us, but to be that for others. 
So here's another question. What would it take for you to be known as a peacemaker? Those closest to you, neighbors, friends, people you work with. What would it take for our church to be known in this city as peacemakers? Now I want to go a little further into this theme to hopefully help answer the question, what would it take for us to get there? And I want to take Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God, and I want to place it in the context of the list it's found in. It's one of nine Beatitudes. The other eight Beatitudes in chapter five of Matthew help us maybe get a picture of just how revolutionary this is, how upside down this is. Helps us understand what it means to actually be a peacemaker. Now here's what I want you to know real quick before we get into this. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's not so much a nice sermon. Jesus is putting a stake in the ground saying, a new kingdom has come. And you can't be loyal to the other kingdoms if you're going to be loyal to my kingdom. He's putting a stake in the ground. He's almost drawing a line in the sand. It's not so much to exclude people, but it's an invitation into something different. I've heard uh, the Sermon on the Mount described as the constitution to the kingdom of heaven. Think of that. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now going around in our country of what it means to be a good American. Here's the conversation of what it means to be a participant in God's kingdom. This great list. These are the things that help a person stand out from the crowd. These are the things God wishes to resource in your life. Greatness in the kingdom is defined this way. And so I want to read through the list and give you a little definition of each. Okay? Starting in verse 3. Here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means to have the knowledge and the understanding uh, of our need for God. It's a desperation for God. It's the ultimate source of humility. And if you just simply want to state what it means to be poor in spirit, you would just say, I need God. I need Jesus. I need him today. I need him tomorrow. I've needed him in the past. I'll never not need him. I need him. I need God's power. And by the way, this is the open door for God's power to come and work in your life. Simply saying you need him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does it mean to be blessed because you mourn? Well, this is an awareness of the brokenness in the world and the appropriate grief, sorrow, and lament that should follow because we are people who are dreaming and waiting for a better future. And anytime we experience anything other than that, we grieve it. See, brokenness touches all of our lives because it's a part of this world. Sometimes it's close and intense, I was so proud of Carrie for sharing last week with you about her and Josh's miscarriage last year. Deep personal brokenness. This person in the kingdom has the attitude that doesn't have them turning away from tragedy or racial injustice or bad laws or people suffering. It keeps them looking. This is the type of person that doesn't wish to medicate the pain or be desensitized. I mean, look what's happening. We watch the news, and we're so used to bad news, it doesn't even hurt anymore. But blessed are those who mourn. They grieve the brokenness in the world. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is defined lots of ways. Uh, restrained, restrained strength is one way to describe it. 
In the kingdom of God, a meek person takes all of the authority they have, their positions, their wealth, their power, their connections, their physical might. Certain people today like using the word privilege. You can throw all of those in there and say, a meek person takes all of those and they become tools to lift. Tools to lift others up. See, what they do in the kingdom of God is we go to the very bottom. We go to those that are forgotten, those that have nothing, those that can't change things on their own. And we use whatever power we have to lift them up. That's what meekness looks like in the kingdom of God. Their strength breaks strongholds and systems and brings freedom and empowers. Meekness is the message of power that we find in the scriptures. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. This is a burn inside of you for the life of Jesus to be lived out of you, to have his appetites, to want what he wants. This is a person that's continually repenting and growing and becoming, not because they have to, but because they know that the life of Jesus is the best life for them. They don't burn for moralism or religion, they burn for righteousness. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. These are the people who share what has first, uh, what has first been shared with them. So you can't give away something you've not yet received. So living water becomes a picture of this that we find over and over again in the scriptures. And for something to be categorized as living water, it has to have a, a source. So a spring might be the source of living water. But you couldn't call something living water in ancient times unless there was an exit. Over the years, I've said to you that grace without an outlet will spoil. Well, listen, mercy is a type of grace. Mercy without an outlet will spoil. So blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those people who show mercy towards others. Just like Jesus did. And what did he do? He looks at us and he sees the ugliness in us and he sees our weakness and he sees our vulnerabilities and he shows us mercy. See, a merciful person in the kingdom of God looks at the ugliness and the weakness and the vulnerabilities of other people. They don't take advantage of it, they show mercy. These are people who refuse to keep records of wrongs. They refuse to keep track of what's owed to them. They're merciful. Verse eight, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. These are people who have been so transformed that they have new motives and actions and attachments. Their loves have been, uh, have been reordered. Dallas Willard described it this way. He says, it's the furniture of your inner life that's been rearranged. By the way, this, I think, is the greatest blessing. They will see God. Then we get to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10 and 11 go together. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What Jesus is saying here is you're gonna take hits in life. Everyone does. Everyone gets judged. Everyone gets misunderstood. Everyone is a victim at some point or another of others. But if you're gonna be judged, take the hits that Jesus takes. But be careful not to confuse righteousness for self-righteousness. There are a lot of people today who walk around self-righteous and people are rejecting them. And they're saying, well, it's because I'm doing things the right way. No, 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 what's being rejected is the arrogance and the self-righteousness. We have to be so careful to find line there. So within that great list comes blessed are the peacemakers. Each beatitude helps us understand the other. So even though we're focusing on this one, all of these help. Those who grieve are committed to changing the brokenness in this world. Those who hunger and th uh, thirst for righteousness are always going back to God for more of his life. They're never empty. 
Those who are merciful are receiving from God and extending mercy towards others. No wonder these are the people who are peacemakers. Now, you could think of this list a number of ways. You could think of it like a report card, which we'd all get an F. But I don't think we should think of it that way. This series, this message, this whole list is an invitation. It's an invitation into the life of Jesus. What's being described here is what heaven is like. This is the inner life of Jesus expressed in action. This is what heaven looks like. Every beatitude is an imperative of the grand vision of the kingdom of God and how people are meant to live new lives. So it's an invitation, but these beatitudes, and especially this one, the peacemakers, is medicine. It's medicine for sick people. It's medicine for sick communities, sick churches, sick cultures. And listen to this. If you're someone that cares about having an impact in your life, as a Christian, your real impact, or as a church, our real impact has everything to do with our ability to live these things out. Nothing else is more important. Peacemaking is an invitation, but it's also a remedy. So let me describe peacemakers for a little bit. Peacemakers fight for reconciliation, and I use that word carefully, because it is a struggle. It is a battle. Their goal is always the restored and healed relationships among people, so people are the agenda. Peacemakers, what do they do? Well, they grieve the divisions that exist between them and others. They don't just settle for this hostility. They also grieve the, the divisions that they just notice around that maybe doesn't include them. Peacemakers abstain from gossip and divisive talk, which includes posts. They abstain from shameful talk, shameful posts. Peacemakers do not gloat with their own victory or do they do not gloat with the defeat of, of others, their rivals. They do not hold grudges. And above all, Peacemakers know that the hostility and division that might exist in their own heart is not only something that harms them, because listen, Jesus is offering us something. He said, blessed is this life. There's a benefit to living this way. So if we live the opposite way, there's something that harms us. And so not only does this harm us when we fail to live this way, it grieves God, but you know what it does? It hinders the kingdom of God. It's one thing to not care about the kingdom very much. It's another thing entirely to work against it. I wonder how much of our hostility is working against the kingdom. So we've created a series that's all about helping us grow. This comes out of a great need. And hopefully I don't have to spend a lot of time describing the divisive world we live in. But today I want us thinking about the divisions that exist in our own hearts. I want us thinking about the divisions that exist in our own faith communities, in this church. And I don't say any of that to to like let you in on that there's some divisive topic that we have camps and factions forming here at Cornerstone. That's not the case. In fact, I've never experienced that here. We've been graced with, with a lot of harmony and unity. But there is a lot of hostility that people feel today towards other people. The truth is the family, our family, is not very good at this. We're not really committed Let me ask you this, how many of you, at some point in your life when you've been discipled by someone else, you were set down and you were mentored in being a peacemaker? I know I wasn't. 
How many of you have been challenged by a mentor to say, you know what, this hostility you hold in your heart, even if what someone did to you was not your fault, this is not good for you or the kingdom. God has given you the ministry of reconciliation to be his ambassadors. This is the way he makes his appeal through you. See, the family, I think, is suffering. That's why we need it. One of the family narratives in the Carlucci home growing up is that relationships were, could be cast out. When things didn't go well, you could just forget certain people. And it really stemmed all the way back to my grandpa. My grandpa had two uh, younger brothers. So my grandpa's name was Guy, and his brothers were Bert and Ernie. My grandpa might as well have been called Oscar, because that was his personality as well. And so you have Guy and Bert and Ernie. But uh, in their young adult years, uh, a dispute took place over dividing up the family's estate, my great-grandparents' estate. And my, my grandpa, Guy, walked away and for nearly five decades hated his brother Ernie. And he tolerated his brother, Bert. I remember as a young boy, I'd go over to my grandpa's house, and um, I, I would just wonder how weird it was that we never met his family. And so one day I asked him, I said, Grandpa, why can't I meet your brothers? And I thought maybe they lived far away, or maybe they had died. And my grandpa said, oh, no, they don't live far away. They haven't died. They're still alive. They've lived two miles down the road. See, the estranged relationship was just part of the family system. It, it was uh, almost agreeable by everyone that this is what you do. Relationships can be cast out. In that family, marriages were optional. There was no reconciliation between husband and wife when hostility and division would arise, which it certainly always does. You know, I'm really proud of my mom and dad because they broke this terrible tradition of divorce in, in the Carlucci family. It wasn't always pretty. I remember as a boy, my parents separating for a few months. It was scary, and I saw my parents struggle and fight because peacemaking is a fight for reconciliation. So let me ask you another question. Do you think God is grieved by the divisions in his family? No, really, do you think God grieves Think God grieves over the divisions that rise up in our community, just like they do in every community, every faith community, but do you think God grieves? Of course he does. It's here. And here we are in the middle of a pressure cooker, the most divisive times in my life. You know, after the last election, I went and sat down with a couple who was leaving the church, and the reason for leaving the church was um, things were actually going really well, but it was all over the election. And uh, the lady I was meeting with, she actually said, she said, I can't imagine coming to worship with someone who didn't vote like me. It makes me sick sitting next to people who voted different. As a friend, their friend, and a pastor, it broke my heart. Did ho hostility exist? Yeah. To pre pretend it wasn't there, it would... would uh, would be, uh, it's not peacemaking, it's a false peace. But there was no attempt to understand, no attempt to reconcile, no urgency to live like Jesus as a peacemaker. Over the years, I shouldn't say the years, really the last four years since the last election, I've been asked many times, why don't we have more conversations about divisive topics? Why can't we have more 
discussions about these divisive topics. Now, what we're doing in this series, we're actually having some of those discussions. You'll hear about some of those uh, midweek events coming up in the next couple months. But when I was asked that question, it wasn't so much me thinking through, like, can we do it? Of course we can do it. We can put people up on the stage. We can put people in a circle in this room. But my question is, are we allowed to do it? My question was, can we do it in the sense, do we have the ability to move towards others who think different than us? And for most of that time, I just kept answering the question, I don't think we can do it. I don't want to put people in the room and have them get beat up. I don't think we can do it. But as a pastor, that, in a sense, was my mistake because what I should have been doing during that time is helping us grow in the ability to have those conversations. We don't have the ability. It was like this summer, I was at Table Rock Lake with my family, and I was hanging out with my cousin, and and I was taking care of his little boys, five or six years old, and he looked at me and said, can I go swimming? And I said, well, yeah, you can go swimming, but can you actually swim? Do you have the ability to? Or you hurt yourself or hurt someone else. See, I th- it's hard not to have this message be sobering. But we've got to figure this out. When Elise and I were struggling in our marriage many years ago, first three years were hell. She hated me. I was a horrible husband. Um, I didn't like her. Everything I tried wasn't working. We needed to figure out, we had two little boys at home. We didn't need to just figure out how to tolerate each other. We needed to figure out how to have a redefined and restored relationship, which is exactly what God did. But I'll tell you what, it was a fight. I don't think we're very good at this. How many of us take Romans 12, 18 seriously? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, not everyone else, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. In her book, Disunity in Christ, Christina Cleveland describes this kind of weird process that we go through as we grow this way. She says, when I first began walking with Jesus, I felt an immediate and authentic connection with other Christians who crossed my path. Orthodox, Catholic, Charismatic, Lutheran, Evangelical, Black, White, Asian, it didn't matter, we were family. But as I walked with Jesus somehow, my growth had been coupled with increasingly stronger opinions about the right way to be a follower, the right way to live. And I started keeping people I didn't enjoy or agree with at arm's length. I managed to avoid most of the difficult people in my life by locating them, categorizing them, and gracefully shunning them, all the while appearing to be both spiritual and committed to unity. I chose to build community with people with whom I could pretty much agree with on everything. I think that's what she's describing what many of us have settled for as a false peace. As a spiritual father for our community, I want so much more for us than that. I see our diversity in a number of different ways and I see it as a strength only as far as we are able to deal with the hostility we have with people. You know what I love about Jesus? Jesus doesn't say, hey, pretend to not have hostility. Pretend there'll be no conflict. See, peacemaking is a necessary part of life. We actually have a message in this series called The Healing Power of Conflict. Conflict actually can bring people together when it's, when it's handled in the right way. But I think we need to admit, and I'll be the first to do it, we're not very good at this right now. 
let me keep going. Let me tell you what peacemaking is not. Let me say this clearly. Peacemaking is not just sitting by and staying quiet as things fall apart, relationships fall apart. It's not just hoping things will get better. It's that necessary process where hostility is dealt with. Empathy is shared. Restoration, relationship is restored. Next week, we're gonna share with you some of the gospel principles of peacemaking, some of the skills we can grow in. But it's learning to fight differently. It's not sitting by. It's being active. It's being proficient in the weapons of reconciliation. Empathy, forgiveness, confession. Love, grace. What if we got really good at those things? What if we started right here in our community? Would that transform something? I believe so. We have to learn to fight differently, Cornerstone. For years now, I've been inspired by Jackie Robinson, and I've told you many stories about him. And I love finding biographies and autobiographies and memoirs of of him and, and people that knew him. Because I love hearing about his inner life because it, it was something profound. God had done something amazing, amazing in him to allow a man like that to endure so much hate. But one of my favorite stories is um, one day when, when Jackie was being asked to kind of come into the major leagues, Branch Rickey, who was in charge of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, called Jackie into his office and had offered him a minor league contract with the the, the, the um with the organization, and eventually Jackie would make it to the major leagues, and this was going to be the moment the major league baseball integrated. Now, the reason Branch chose Jackie because there were other really good baseball players who were black who were worthy of being asked to be the first, but the reason he chose Jackie was not just because he was really, really good at baseball, which he was, but he chose Jackie because he had a fight inside of him. Over the years, he had been arrested for standing up for uh, civil rights. Uh, recently, he had been arrested for not giving up his seat on a bus, moving to the back. And so Branch loved the spirit inside of Jackie, and so he brings him into the office. But he wants to see, can that energy, can that dedication, that fight be put into a different direction? And so he asked him more than one time this question. He says, do you have the guts? Do you have the guts? And Jackie, who was probably an eight like me, as soon as someone says something like that to them, we puff up and say, absolutely, bring it on. And Branch said, no, no, no. Do you have the guts to not fight back? See, what he was asking is, there's a fight in you, and there's a fight before you, but will you fight for something different? Both men were Methodists, loved the scriptures. Branch Rickey pulled out one of his favorite books called The Life of Christ, and he read Jackie this verse. Words of Jesus from Matthew chapter five. Later on, it's verse 39, but it's in the same sermon we're studying today. This is what it says. I say unto thee, I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And he looked at him, he said, can you do that? Can you be a peacemaker? In a hostile place, you know it's coming. The divisions are great, but can you be a peacemaker? Here's a picture of the guys together. Man, peacemakers are not weak. 
They don't just sit back and wait for things to change. They fight differently. They refuse to be passive. They refuse to let the things that cause injustice and inequality and hostility among people, they refuse to just let it exist. And so if you see something that's wrong, a peacemaker speaks up. But you know what else they don't do? They don't use ideological jabs to get at people. They don't use ideological posts to shame people. They don't send emails like the one I sent. They don't carry family grudges year after year. But again, they are not passive. They do not ignore the pain. And they are proficient in those powerful tools of reconciliation. We want you to become so familiar with these. Empathy, confession, repentance, forgiveness. One last story and then I'll close. So I told you that shameful story that occurred last month right before this series. It's funny how that always happens to me. Two weeks later, I was uh, at a football game for one of my boys. I was a helping coach. Three of my good buddies are the, kind of the head coaches of that team, and I'm just there to assist and support them. Well, over the first couple games of that season, the coaches had been harassed by one of the parents, like vulgar uh, things being said, just constant harassment. It, it was really inappropriate. Guys should have been removed from the field. Well, during one of the games, he comes running out on the field, and he grabs one of our coaches and starts letting him have it because his son's been pulled off the field. And um, it's never been said of me that I'm a peacekeeper. And it'll probably never be said of me. When this happened, I thought this needs to be dealt with right now. So I walked up to this dad and I said, why are you here? And I said, you need to leave right now. You need to get out of here right now. We'd be glad to talk to you about what you're upset about after the game, but this is not happening right now. Well, this dad had probably never been talked to this way at a football game. And he lost it. He went up and down the sideline the rest of the half just irate, you know, belittling the entire coaching staff. I mean, I was enemy number one. Terrible things being said, upsetting grandparents and mothers and fathers that were watching. And so, uh, as you can imagine, the emails were great that went to the head of the club that day and the next day. And this parent was going to be removed permanently from the games the rest of the season. And as I was sitting with it, and I was angry for what had happened, I had no problem confronting this person in the moment, but I felt like God whispered, and he said, Brian, I want you to move towards him in a meaningful way. And I thought what that might look like and how that might be helpful, and so I prayed, and I felt like the Lord said, I want you to call the the president of the club, who I know personally. And so I called him up, and I walked him through everything that had taken place that day, And he actually thanked me for confronting this parent because it was just getting so out of line. But I said, hey, I appreciate that. But the reason I'm calling is because I want to advocate for this dad. I don't want him removed. I mean, he's an actual dad that shows up at his son's game to watch him. He's there to support him. Let's not separate him from something he cares about. Let's just help him get better. I'd be glad to sit down with him. I'd be glad to sit down and share the experience of an angry parent because I've been one of those before. I'd be glad to share the experience of a coach that's having to deal with that because I've been that before. I'd be glad to help. Last week, the boys had their game and uh, our team won in overtime, made the playoffs. Very exciting, super cool. All the boys played great. This particular dad's son in overtime made two great tackles. And after the game, 
and went up to him and I shook his hand and I just said, you should be really proud. Your son made some great plays. And we smiled at each other. You know, I slept really good that night. I experienced what it's like to be a peacemaker. I experienced the blessing of God. I experienced, God, is this what it's like for you with me? I want more of that. And I'm willing to move in that direction. I want to move our church in that way as well. And so as I close, finish this message and start this series, I just wonder right now, is there something inside, is there hostility inside of you and your story that you have with someone else? Is there a grudge that you've carried? Is there unforgiveness? Is there a relationship that you just, you just let deteriorate, you went away, and there was no effort on your part to move towards others with reconciliation? And maybe your motivation is that you want to experience the blessing of God. But maybe your motivation is that you want to make the appeal of Jesus and the appeal for the kingdom by this action. You trust what the scriptures say. You trust that God uses behaviors like that to heal the world. Whatever it is. Could you think of one? It's probably not that hard to come up with at least one. Now I want to give you a moment just in quiet with the Lord to speak to him about that. He'll tell you what to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this quiet moment. We thank you for the connection prayer is to you and to your heart. We thank you that you know what's in our heart before we even say it. So right now, Lord, as we just sit in silence and listen to your voice, I pray that you would speak to each one of us about this ministry of reconciliation, about what it looks like to be a child of God as a peacemaker. So Father, I pray you speak. We're listening. Father, we thank you for this time and your voice speaking to us. Thank you for what you're gonna say later this week to, to those that are listening as we spend time in prayer with you. We thank you that all of this is modeled with you, Father, as you welcome the Spirit and you welcome Jesus and you live in perfect camaraderie and friendship and love and honor. And then you reconcile us to you. Father, I pray that our hearts would be full, that we would never forget what's been given to us so that we might walk in this way. We pray for healing. We pray for restored relationships. We pray for many stories of how you did amazing things as we walk as peacemakers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for kicking off our new series, Brian. As we've mentioned before, our hope is that Peacemakers becomes more than something we just listen to on Sundays, but a movement of reconciliation and cornerstone. 
So over the next several months, we're gonna have some events where we will get to engage in divisive topics with reconciliation in mind. Our first event is October 26th and 27th. It's going to be a Zoom discussion group around the topic of, you ready for it? Politics. Yep, we're just gonna dive right in. What we're gonna do is listen to a lecture or a podcast, maybe read a couple of articles together, and then we're gonna move into discussion groups where we're gonna talk about how we engage in our political atmosphere today how we talk to our friends and family, how we talk to each other, when our political views are different, our political parties we adhere to are different, how we do all of that with a kingdom mindset that while we don't always agree, we are still part of one body and we are still for one another and that God is bigger than any political party. If you wanna be a part of this discussion group, simply go to our upcoming events tab on the website or app and sign up today. Another online group we have starting this Wednesday the 21st is a book discussion group. In the beginning, God issued an invitation for us to live life with Him. So we will be reading through The Great Dance, The Christian Vision Revisited, and talking about how we engage in our everyday lives with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you want to sign up for this group, again, just go to our upcoming events tab of the website or app and register today. Momhood! We have a Momhood Zoom connection this Thursday, the 22nd at 10 a.m. We're gonna be talking about the baby and toddler years. So if you wanna join us for the Zoom connection, simply email momhood at cornerstoneboulder.org for the Zoom link. We have had a blast over the summer and in the fall, meeting together for church together in our courtyard. But colder weather is coming, so that means some changes to how we're gonna be doing things. October 25th, we'll still be outside in the courtyard, so please bundle up, bring some blankets, and dress appropriately for the weather. On November 1st, we're moving indoors. So we'll send out some information about the protocols we'll have to change for moving indoors and registration information for church together indoors and kids church together indoors in the coming weeks. And lastly, giving. Giving at Cornerstone is pretty important to us because it's a way that we partner together and partner with God. Our collective giving helps us make a greater impact in Boulder County and surrounding areas than we would by ourselves. If you'd like to partner with us in giving, you can find secure ways to do that right on our website. That's it for me. Stay classy, Cornerstone, and thanks for stopping by.